0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Clinical Conundrums in Pre-Treated Metastatic Urothelial Carcinoma, Improving Patient Outcomes with Novel Antibody Drug Conjugates. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward VRE860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Hi, my name is Scott Tagawa. I am a G.U. medical oncologist at Weill Cornell Medicine New York Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. Welcome to this educational activity entitled Clinical Conundrums in Metastatic Carcinoma: Improving Patient Outcomes with Novel Antibody Drug Conjugates. I'm very pleased today to be joined by my colleague, Amy Patel, who's a G.U. nurse specialist. Welcome, Amy.
2: Thanks for having me today.
1: Our goal today is to explore some of the recent advances of antibody drug conjugates, which I may refer to as ADCs, for the treatment of metastatic urothelial cancer. We'll cover what these advances have meant for patients as well as their multidisciplinary provider team. Additionally, throughout this activity, we'll hear some first-hand thoughts from one of our own patients. Let's get started. Why are we here today? We know that there have been advances in clinical trials, but clinical trials may not always represent the real world. As you can see on this slide, when we look at real world data, unfortunately, sometimes more than half of patients with a different disease, such as advanced carcinoma, never actually receive even first line treatment. And despite the fact that when we look at trials, That show things advances such as maintenance therapy, things like that, where eighty percent may go on in a clinical trial to receive maintenance therapy. Maintenance therapy and second and third line therapy is even lower. There have been some some studies looking at why this is. We know that some patients, or often patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma, have comorbidities. They may have been former smokers. Uh, There's also, however, a perception that the available agents are toxic with low efficacy profiles. There are side effects, but there have been its advances, both in terms of efficacy as well as tolerability, and we will discuss those today. This slide represents the overall advances in terms of FDA approvals over many decades. We know that the initial use uh, of introduction of cisplatin into the field not just for urothelial but for many cancers, was really revolutionary. And then a couple of seminal phase 3 trials in the 1980s showed that the MVAC uh, regimen was better than single-agent cisplatin, as well as the uh, combination chemotherapy, CISCA. After that, however, one might say there were no major advances uh, for many decades. Nothing really beat MVAC. Uh, gemcitabine cisplatin was not better than MVAC, although was better tolerable and became one of the available standard of care. What was called high-dose MVAC by my colleague Cora Sternberg, uh, later renamed dose-dense MVAC, was superior in some ways, but not clearly better than MVAC, and it was all the way up until the 2016 approximate time frame, where the immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, some people call them the anti-PD-1 or pdl one drugs. Following platinum based chemotherapy, showed some advances. The response rates, however, are low, but they are tolerable, and especially with the drug pembrolizumab, show an overall survival advantage versus traditional salvage chemotherapy, which has response rates of somewhere between 8 and 12%. Following that, three major new drugs were approved. uh, All of what I would put in the targeted therapy. Um, type of category. Ritafitnib is molecularly selected for FGFR alterations and two antibody drug conjugates that I will mention today. Avalimab was initially approved in the post-cisplatin uh, setting or platinum setting, um, but f- following non-progression on platinum-based chemotherapy, we know that that drug works in the maintenance setting. We'll now focus on antibody drug conjugates. So, Amy, what do you think is important to highlight when we explain inhibitor conjugates or ADCs to patients?
2: So, I think the first most important thing to talk about is ADCs are not like your traditional treatment regimen. They're an exciting treatment option for patients with metastatic urethral carcinoma. And I do believe that the impact that it's had on patients has given them an option to choose from with regards to a treatment regimen and allowing them to maintain their quality of life. So when we're having this discussion, it's important to discuss side effects, dosing regimen, their schedule, potential side effects that they can manage on their own, but then also communicate with us so that we can help mitigate those issues.
1: I agree. We're going to go over some, first the efficacy, which I will talk about, and then Amy will talk about some of the specific side effects. But I, I agree. I think it's important to to describe the overall package to our patients Uh these, I, I you do use the word chemotherapy when talking about these, but these are more of a targeted chemotherapy, and generally speaking, for most patients, the adverse event rate or side effects are going to be manageable. So let's now discuss uh, some of the ADCs. Animated conjugates or ADCs in general, uh, will have a target that will uh, term an antigen that is uh, generally a cell surface protein or antigen um, that is on tumor cells. Sometimes these are on other places in the body, um, but usually to a limited extent. We pair that with a very specific monoclonal antibody, which is able to target that antigen. Uh, that antibody is um, linked with something we call a linker uh, to uh, what's called a payload, which is generally uh, a poison. That's what I determined, uh, discuss with patients, um, usually either something that interferes with DNA or with uh, microtubules. Because these are taken to the target, or antigen, um, via monoclonal antibodies, they, the targeting is quite specific. Uh, because of these properties, uh, they ha- often have response rates that is superior to what we'd expected in the past. We have two FDA-approved antibody drug conjugates for patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma. In Fortimavidotin, which I will probably refer to during this talk as EV, targets Nectin-4, is, uh, links the potent antimicrotubule inhibitor, MMAE, via a protease cleavable linker. We'll get into the details in a little bit. And Sazituzamagovitikin, which I may refer to as SG, targets Trope-2, uh, and has SN38, which is the active metabolite of Irinitikin, uh, linked to the antibody via hydrolyzable linker. Let's speak about the antibody drug conjugate in vidotin The target of EV is Nectin-4. We know that Nectin-4 is overexpressed in a number of different epithelial tumor types. And fortunately for those of us that treat bladder cancer or upper tract urothelial cancers, we know that in the vast majority, nectin 4 is expressed to a high level. It does have some expression in normal tissue, and that's important as we get to some of the toxicity profile. For instance, it's expressed in the skin. The target NECAN4 um, is reached via the construct of the, an ADC called Vedotin. This includes an antibody that's directed against NECAN4. Uh, has the potent antimicrotubule agent, MMAE, um, and that's bound to a cleavable linker. That linker is very tight, so it's only broken once the target is reached. The or conjugate is internalized into that target cell, which hopefully in our case is a metastatic urothelial carcinoma cell. And upon internalization, the MMAE is released resulting in cell death. Tazituzumagavitikan is a different type of a construct, actually not just to EV, but uh, compared to many of the ADCs. uh, Like others, there is a very specific target, in this case, Trope 2. The antibody is very specific to this target. However, there is, uh, uh, generally speaking, compared to other ADCs, a higher number of uh, payload molecules, in this case SN38, and the leaker is hydrolyzable. This, this allows it to release both into the cell as well as to surrounding tissues. Trope 2 is expressed across a number of different cancer types, and as you can see on this graph, um, luckily for those of us in the geo-oncology world, we can see that to the far right is bladder cancer. Trope-2 is expressed across many different molecular subtypes of urothelial carcinoma, um, as well as uh, what we call variant histology, although when we uh, get to neuroendocrine-like or small cell, the um, expression pattern generally drops. We have a recent publication that demonstrates that even in cells that are resistant to um, infortimab they will retain trope-2 expression. The mechanism of action of SG is similar to other ADCs except because of this hydrolyzable linker uh, the payload is released both inter- into the cell as well as into the stroma and allows more of a bystander effect as well as a an indirect effect on the tissue microenvironment of the tumor microenvironment. So for those of us that treat patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma We have two ADCs, we have Infortamab-Vidotin and sazazamab importantly, each with different targets and different payloads. Because of the unique mechanism of action of these drugs, the efficacy that we expect is typically much greater than what we have historically seen with traditional chemotherapy regimens. We will be covering the efficacy data in a few minutes, but first I'd like to give you a sense of a patient's perspective. We were fortunate to discuss the experience of ADC therapy with one of our own patients, Mr. Artizone. Mr. Artizone is a retired NYP detective who, at 83 years old, was diagnosed with recurrent metastatic urothelial carcinoma that had originally started in his upper tracts several years before that. For workup, it was determined that he was unfit for cisplatin-based chemotherapy, as per the classic Gowski criteria and he elected to enroll in a clinical trial that has been termed EV103. In this clinical trial, he enrolled in the cohort that was a triplet regimen, where he received ADC and fortumab the dotin, or DV for short, the, the chemotherapy carboplatin, and the immune checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab. After his response, he did develop some side effects, most prominently neuropathy and rash, and ended up stopping the cytotoxic components of the infortimabidotin or EV and carboplatin, and he continued on embrolizumab maintenance. After approximately 10 months, however, he developed progression of his disease. On analysis of his tumor, he was found to have an activating mutation in FGFR3, and his next line of therapy was pertocitinib. He tolerated that reasonably well at the beginning, although across a number of months, he had a number of different dose adjustments, but fortunately, like the prior therapy, he responded and that response continued for approximately 10 months as well, until which time, unfortunately, had further progression of his cancer due to the unique targets and differing adverse event profiles of ADCs and some other agents. As we mentioned in this case, they can often be used sequentially. After a discussion amongst our multidisciplinary team, we elected to start a different ADC, Sazituzumab-Govitikin. Following the first three cycles, so a little bit more than two months of therapy, repeat scans showed a response and he was tolerating reasonably well. We are now one and a half years into this drug. He continues to have reasonable disease control, reasonable defined by a little bit of tumor growth from his data, but overall cancer control. And he continues to tolerate the drug reasonably well. And he continues this drug two weeks on, one week off, day one and eight, every 21 days, as per the label. And fortunately, he's tolerating this drug with disease control at about 19 months to date. Establishing trust and a strong relationship between patients and their healthcare teams is of utmost importance and emphasizing key points that are unique to ADCs, as well as other drugs, is critical. Developing relationships, not only with the patient, but also with their caregivers is crucial. We asked Mr. Artizone about the value of being able to trust his care team and shown here are a few things that he had to say. Amy, we discuss all of the different options with our patients. What do you think about establishing a trusting relationship with them and their families?
2: That's a great question. I think every patient at this time in their life are very scared to move forward with a new treatment therapy. It's a new realm for them. And I think that the key nursing aspect as part of our job and role is to make sure that they understand that they are our top priority and that we will see them through the entire process. In our practice, we do put a lot of emphasis on communication and letting us know what is going on early on so we can intervene and help the patient through their symptoms that they're having. I think we also do tell patients that if they do need us at any time, we have a support system and numbers that they can call to help us um, understand what's better going on with them.
1: Yes, I, th- I think communication is key. And I think it's also great to have a multi-dissimilar team made up of physicians, nurses, social workers, etc. On, on the healthcare side uh, patients hopefully have additional caregivers, and I think it's important to involve them as well. We greatly appreciate hearing from Mr. Artzon about his own experiences, which align with many of our patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Let's review some of the data that established ADCs as effective agents in this setting. Infortabavidotin, as mentioned, is one of the approved antibody drug conjugates. Following initial phase one studies, one of the pivotal studies called EV201, was performed. As you can see in the study schema, there were two separate cohorts. Both enrolled patients with advanced erothelial carcinoma that had prior treatments. This was not a randomized trial. There were different cohorts, and you can think of it just parallel, separate phase two clinical trials. We'll go over each cohort. Cohort one enrolled patients with prior platinum-based chemotherapy, as well as immune checkpoint inhibitors, although they could have received additional therapies as well. What you can see here is a confirmed overall response rate of 44%, which is significantly higher versus historical controls, which we would say would be approximately 10%. That overall response rate included 12% with, with complete responses. And you can see that the on the waterfall plot, that the mass majority, even those who did not achieve an official resist objective, uh, partial, or complete response, had tumor shrinkage. Analogous to cohort 1 was cohort 2. This enrolled patients who were cisplan ineligible who had prior exposure to immune truck checkpoint inhibitors. This, like cohort 1, also showed a much higher than expected compared to historical controls response rate of 52%. And like cohort 1, as you can see in the waterfall plot, the vast majority had tumor control. Those studies led to the initial accelerated approval of EV for patients with pretreated advanced urethyl carcinoma. The EV301 study was the confirmatory study for this particular drug. This enrolled patients with advanced urethyl carcinoma who had prior platinum containing chemotherapy, as well as immune checkpoint inhibitors. Patients were randomized to EV, or the protocol specified investigators choice of a taxane or vinfluning if they were in Europe. The primary endpoint was overall survival. And what was demonstrated in this study was that overall survival, as well as progression-free survival, and virtually all of the secondary endpoints, including response rate, um, was improved with EV over control. There are some combinations that are being investigated. This looked at a number of different combinations. Uh, we'll go over some of the data uh, that has been uh, publicly released. This, in the first-line setting, showed an impressive overall response rate. Importantly, what appeared in this uh, small cohort was that there was not a major increase in adverse events versus either of the two drugs alone. The EV302 phase three study is going, uh, is underway head to head against platinum chemotherapy. Sazatuzumab Gavitikin was initially tested in a phase one study that enrolled a number of different refractory epithelial tumor types. And what was seen in the initial phase one portion of the study, as published by my colleague Bishoy Faltas, was a response rate that seemed higher than historical controls that led to a 45-patient expansion cohort in in that basket study that showed a a response rate of approximately 30%. That phase one study led to the Trophy U01 study, which is displayed on on this slide, which enrolls a number of different non-randomized cohorts. We'll run through some of the cohorts that have had um, presentations and or publications. Core one of the Trophy User One study was the study that led to the accelerated approval of SG for advanced urothelial carcinoma. This study enrolled patients with at least prior platinum-based chemotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, patients res- were, were enrolled at meeting their fourth line, and they had a response rate of approximately 27%. Again, that was much higher than expected with prior historical controls of 10 to 12%. Uh, like EV, the majority of patients have tumor control as can be seen on this waterfall plot. The different subsets also had a similar overall response rate, including the small subset with prior exposure to enfortzimab with a 30% response rate. The median duration of response was 7.2 months, and median progression and overall survival were uh, um, higher than we expect from historical controls. Cohort three of the Trophy User One study combined sasotumab gavitekin and pembrolizumab in a pre-treated patient population, unlike the EB103 study, which is a first-line study. This study is presented by, by my colleague Petros Scrivas, showed an overall response rate of 34% and appeared to be well tolerated uh, versus either single agent alone. The confirmatory study for this drug is referred to as Tropics 04, which enrolls patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma, prior treatment with at least platinum-based chemotherapy and immune checkpoint inhibition, without limit of prior lines of therapy, provided there is an adequate choice for a control, such as taxane chemotherapy, or if in Europe, vinflunine. This is ongoing, Uh, enrollment is going briskly, and the primary endpoint is overall survival. Before we hear about some important safety aspects, as I've really just focused on efficacy, Amy, what are some of the most important pieces of information you want the patient and caregivers to understand when starting an ADC regimen?
2: I think the most important thing to discuss is that we encourage an open discussion and communication and always keep a dialogue with the patient going, Um, especially with their caregivers, because it's not just the patient that we're treating, but we're also there to help support the patient's family and help them through the process. So it's important to educate them on side effects and making sure that they understand and, you know, empower them to contact us and also take care of themselves properly.
1: What what do you think we should tell them that may be different than prior types of therapies that they've received?
2: So ADCs are more targeted drugs, so they might, at the most, have some infusion-related reaction.
1: What's, what are the most common questions that they ask you?
2: Um, so the most common questions they ask me is why they should go on this medication or whether or not it's going to work. Um, they also do ask me about side effects, how often they need to come in, and whether or not I'm easily accessible
1: to them. That's great. You know, I, I think, as I mentioned before, that. Having a multidisciplinary team is very important and can be quite powerful. What's the nurse's role?
2: So the nurse's role is to be there with the patient every step of the way. We not only take care of them from a clinical standpoint, but we also make sure that the infusion nurse is administering the drug as directed. We also monitor them throughout the infusion and even after if it's indicated. Um, and we're also there to mitigate any issues that they may be having from a side effect perspective and also plug them in with the appropriate resources if they do need any assistance, such as social work or nutritionists or dietitians. The oncology nurse's role is to understand the mechanism of actions of newer drugs, such as ADCs, as Dr. Tagala mentioned. We are also there to support the patients receiving these novel therapies. Vigilance and patient education is very important on managing potential AEs. Some patients come well-prepared with all of their symptoms or their questions, but then there are some patients that don't report anything. So it's our job as the nurse to ask the appropriate questions in conjunction with the provider to make sure that the patients are being taken care of appropriately. Uh, this table over here discusses the similarities and differences in how uh, the drug is given with EV and SG. So if we can see um, EV is given on days 1, 8, and 15 of a 28-day cycle whereas SG is given on days one and eight of a 21-day cycle. Um, the infusion time is also different, how we're giving the medication. So EV is given over 30 minutes, whereas SG is given over three hours the first time. And then for subsequent infusions, one to two hours. Um, the one thing to note here is for SG, we always monitor the patient's 30 minutes for all doses. Uh, dose surrounding is simply to prevent drug wastage, so our pharmacists can pull the appropriate files um, and allow them some flexibility with how they're pulling up the drug. Um, for adverse event profiles, uh, it's important to assess the patients with a thorough history and physical to check for any pre-existing neuropathy or diabetes. Grade 3-4 reactions are rare, but they do occur. So our infusion nurses, they're trained professionals in recognizing these side effects, but it's also our job as providers to inform the patients of what they may be experiencing and to inform the treatment nurse that it's happening. So some side effects we would tell the patients to look out for are fevers, chill, um, a cough that they may be having, shortness of breath, a rash. Um, and then they would report this to the infusion nurse and she would do what we would normally do and treat the patient. Um, some infusion site extravasation is observed with EV. So ensuring adequate IV access is important prior to starting the infusion all hypersensitivity reactions are observed usually within 24 hours of the administration of SG, ranging from mild to anaphylaxis. So normally in this setting, we would pre-medicate the patients with H1 and H2 blockers prior to the infusion, usually 30 to 60 minutes before. Um, And we also have emergency medical equipment in case we need to administer them for immediate use. So I do think that it's important to touch on a few of these. I won't go into all the details, but the key most important side effects to look out for are skin reactions, which can range anywhere between mild and, and severe. So it's important to maintain that communication again, because if we do need to implement any medica- medications such as corticosteroids or antihistamines, we would do so early on before it gets bad. Um, so we would refer patients out to specialized care, such as a dermatologist, for suspected Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrosis. So some patients do complain of peripheral neuropathy. So again, um, monitoring them for any new or worsening peripheral neuropathy is really important so that we can introduce a dose interruption or a dose reduction. Ocular disorders are often reported sometimes, um, blurry vision, dry eyes, and we would consult with an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. But we do tell patients also to get a baseline eye exam prior to them starting therapy. With EV, we do notice that some patients do develop hyperglycemia, so we also get a baseline hemoglobin A with C for these patients and closely monitor them. We may need to hold um, medications. So, for example, if a patient has a blood glucose level of over 250, we would hold the medication and, and confer with the, an endocrinologist if we need to. Uh, some patients also have pneumonitis, so it's important to ask the right questions when you're with the patients and assessing them in the room prior to sending them out for chemotherapy. So, are they hypoxic? Do they have a cough? Um, are they short of breath? Do they have any in- interstitial infiltrates on radiologic exams? Um, if they do, normally we would start steroids. This table over here is really good in uh, looking at AB dose modifications for adverse events. So as I touched on briefly before, for skin reactions or suspected SJS or TEN, we would immediately withhold and send the patient to a specialist. In this case, it would be a dermatologist usually. Um, the other topics I also touched on, hyperglycemia. So if a blood glucose level is above 250, we would withhold until it improves to less than 250 or lower. Um, and then we would restart at the same dose level. Nausea and vomiting are one of the side effects of um, SG. So what we would normally do for these patients um, is premedicate them at least 30 to 60 minutes prior to every day one of their infusion. So, we would give them a 5-HT3 antagonist, such as palinacetron. Hypersensitivity reactions may also occur. So, for preventing this, we would premedicate the patients with an antipyretic, so acetaminophen, and an H1-H2 blocker prior to each infusion. Diarrhea and cholinergic syndrome can also occur. So, for these patients encouraging hydration, um, Usually pre and post treatment is really important. Um, we can administer atropine as long as it's not contraindicated. But for this, we want to make sure that we're not giving the patient the medication prematurely and only when and if they have symptoms. Um, something commonly that we do see with patients who do receive SG is neutropenia. So for example, if they have an ANC count of 1500 or less, then we would hold their treatment or even if they had a neutropenic fever. So some physicians like to give, uh, growth factors. Um, and or initiate anti-infectives to the patients. This slide is also important on uh, touching on SG and dose modifications for adverse reactions. So if a patient has a grade 4 neutropenia that that lasts more than seven days, and it's their first occurrence, which can happen, we would just dose reduce them. So just because a patient has side effects doesn't mean we would take them off. There is a stepwise approach by which we would proceed giving them treatment um, just at a lower, safer dosage. It's important that we understand that we're there to maintain a major influence in the patient's education about their disease and available treatments, including on efficacy and safety. We're also there to identify most appropriate treatment options for patients based on efficacy, adverse events associated with therapies, comorbidities, and individual patient values, goals, and their preferences, providing educational resources to patients, for example, from BCAN, which is the Bladder Cancer Network, therapeutic management, and ensuring patient safety is also part of our role. So routine monitoring, assessing the patient's management of their adverse events associated with the treatment, educating patients and their caregivers on strategies to minimize consequences of potential treatment-related adverse events, assessing patient benefit from therapy, and supporting care coordination between multidisciplinary providers is important. Educating patients about current and newer treatment options to address therapy-related concerns, and identifying and addressing potential barriers to treatment such as logistical, geographic, or financial burdens that they may have.
1: Thank you for that very nice overview. For EV, in summary, about half of patients will develop either a rash and or peripheral neuropathy, and for SG, about two-thirds will have diarrhea, and about half will have neutropenia. Fortunately, for both of these ADCs, most often the adverse events are low-grade, but as Amy pointed out... Good communication and early intervention with supportive care is key. Amy, what are some approaches or take-home tips for providers when using ADCs?
2: I think it's important for providers to consider prior medical history when treating these patients. Prior history with previous cancer treatments and any side effects that are lingering from those. It's important to also assess baseline values such as hemoglobin A1C, current bone marrow function, so that we can anticipate any side effects based off of this. In addition to this, it's important to give proper physical exams and also take a thorough history. Patients tend to underreport their side effects and symptoms because they're afraid of being taken off of the treatment regimen. So it's our job to ensure that they feel comfortable in reporting this to us so that we can intervene and treat them for their symptoms. Early intervention and education is key when getting any treatment at all in the setting of oncology.
1: Thanks, Amy. We have a number of different team members as part of our multidisciplinary care team. We have physicians, we have nurses, we have nurse practitioners, we have dietitians, we have social workers. How important do you think it is to have this, uh, this group with different rules?
2: I think it's really important to have a multidisciplinary team approach when taking care of our patients. So in addition to the medical team, we also have palliative care to help patients with any symptom management that they may be having from a pain perspective. Um, we have social workers to help the patients with any financial issues that they may be having or transportation issues. We also have nutritionists to help guide patients through any dietary controls that they need to have during their treatment.
1: So to recap, um, fortunately for, for, for me and for our healthcare team, uh, as well as for our patients and their families, we have two approved antibody drug conjugates. Uh, these antibody drug conjugates, EV and SG, have overall response rates that are superior to what we had in the past. They improve uh, responses, survival, uh, as well as quality of life, but they have potential side effects. So it's important for us to utilize our entire multidisciplinary care team, communicate with patients and their caregivers to identify adverse events early and to intervene. There are a number of clinical trials that include inhibitor conjugates, including the ones we mentioned, plus some newer ones. How do you talk to your patients about clinical trial enrollment opportunities, Amy?
2: Addressing patients' concerns about trial enrollment and novel therapies is also a part of our role. So counseling patients who have progressed on multiple lines of therapy and encouraging the patients and educating them about enrolling in clinical trials to explore neurotreatment options is something that they can consider as an option for their treatment. And I do feel that clinical trials are a way of us moving towards a newer treatment regimen with lesser toxicities. So I think that clinical trials are very important in moving towards a better science and always finding newer treatment options to give these choices to our patients.
1: It's my belief, and and part of this is my bias, but it's my belief that um, clinical trials are important, uh, at least to discuss for every single patient that's sitting in front of me. Uh, We know that's how we make advances in medicine. And, uh, you know, even if we're in a setting where there's a cure rate of 100%, sometimes we can achieve that cure with less toxicity or less cost, uh, for for example. That being said, we know the number one reason that patients do not enroll in clinical trials is because they are not aware of them. So it's not brought up by their healthcare team. And th- that's what I always will emphasize to all of our fellows as they're going through training. Even if a patient's not eligible, I, I believe it's its right to, be, to discuss clinical research overall, and I will often give them a written informed consent document because I find those documents quite educational for the patients and their families, even if they're not entering a clinical trial. So, we've, we've mentioned uh, the importance of communication amongst the different uh, members of a healthcare team. Do you have any additional comments about that, Amy?
2: I think it's important that we communicate not only with the multidisciplinary team that we have, but also with the patient's primary care provider and keep them in the loop of what's happening. Um, I think that many of the points that we touch on today from educating the patients, making sure that our nurses know what to do during an infusion reaction and how they're monitoring them, um, and also uh, coordinating their care with a point of contact person for the patients to reach out to is very important. Um, With the side effects that we've seen with both SG and EV, it's important to plug ourselves in with dermatologists, endocrinologists, um, gastroenterologists if we need, and and have them ready at hand so that if these patients do have side effects, we know who to refer them to in a timely manner.
1: Thanks. I I agree with that. You mentioned BCAN before, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Uh, this is a, an organization, it's not the only one that exists, but um, I would consider it the main one for that's dedicated to urothelial carcinoma. There's wide-ranging uh, goals of this organization, and that does include being a resource for all the different members of the healthcare team, whether that's physicians and providing education for, for caregivers, as well as research and research funding, but also to the patient and their caregivers. Uh, providing um, educational materials, as well as the A in in BCAN advocacy on a national level. There's also different support groups. For instance, we have um, uh, cancer support groups at our own institution. And and most um, patients, if interested, should be able to find additional resources. So to to wrap up and to cover some key take-home messages... ADCs have, in the recent era, demonstrated efficacy, as well as a tolerable safety profile in patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma who have progressed on prior therapy. We have two currently FDA-approved antibacterial conjugates, Infortimavidotin, or EV, and govitecan or SG. There's additional ADCs that are now in development, as well as the two approved agents are being tested in different combinations and moving forward in terms of frontline therapy as well as in, in perioperative settings. In, especially with the approved agents, clinician familiarity with these therapies and appropriate patient monitoring and management is essential to optimize patient care. Personalizing the choice of ADC therapy to patients based on comorbidities is essential to optimizing outcomes, and that's probably true where the choice is in ADC or other systemic therapies. The overall multidisciplinary team, including nursing professionals, play a key role in managing treatment-related adverse events and patient education and counseling. I'd like to thank all of you for joining us today. In summary, we've seen the evidence that supports the use of ADCs for treating patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma represented positive alternatives for patients. I'd like to also thank you, Amy, for joining me today. Glad to be here. And and most importantly, I'd especially like to thank Mr. Artizone, our patient, for providing his important perspective. Please remember to download the practice aids associated with this educational activity as a resource for you, your staff, and your patients. Thanks again, and we hope that you found this activity informative and useful for your practice.
0: This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VRE 860. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated.